0: There's something new on Airs L.A. every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History. Brought to you from a and Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. January 23. On this date in 1950s history, in the year 1957, toy company wham produces its first Frisbee. Machines at the wham Toy Company roll out the first batch of their aerodynamic plastic discs, now known to millions of fans all over the world as Frisbees. The story of the Frisbee began in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where William Frisbee opened the Frisbee Pie Company in 1871. Students from nearby universities would throw the empty pie tins to each other, yelling Frisbee as they let it go. In 1948, Walter Frederick Morrison and his partner Warren Franschione invented a plastic version of the disc called the Flying Saucer that would fly further and more accurately than the tin pie plates. After splitting with Franschione, Morrison made an improved model in 1955 and sold it to the new toy company, wham as the Pluto Platter, an attempt to cash in on the public craze over space and unidentified flying objects, UFOs. In 1958, a year after the toy's first release, Wham-o, the company behind such top sellers as the Hula Hoop, the Super Bowl, and the Water Wiggle, changed its name to the Frisbee Disc, misspelling the name of the historic pie company. A company designer, Ed Hedrick, patented the design for the modern Frisbee in December 1967, adding a band of raised ridges on the disc's surface, called the rings, to stabilize flight. By aggressively marketing Frisbee, playing as a new sport, Wham-O sold over 100 million units of its famous toy by 1977. High school students in Maplewood, New Jersey, invented Ultimate Frisbee, a cross between football, soccer, and basketball, in 1967. In the 1970s, Hedrick himself invented Frisbee golf, in which discs are tossed into metal baskets. There are now hundreds of courses in the U.S. with millions of devotees. There is also freestyle frisbee with choreographed routines set to music and multiple discs in play, and various frisbee competitions for both humans and dogs, the best natural frisbee players. Today, at least 60 manufacturers produce the flying discs, generally made out of plastic and measuring roughly 20 to 25 centimeters or 8 to 10 inches in diameter with a curved lip. The official frisbee is owned by Mattel Toy Manufacturers. Who bought the toy from Whammo in 1994? January 24. On this date in the Great Depression in the year 1935, the first canned beer goes on sale. Canned beer makes its debut on January 24, 1935, in partnership with the American Can Company. The Gottfried Kruger Brewing Company delivered 2,000 cans of Kruger's finest beer and Kruger's ice cream ale to faithful Kruger drinkers in Richmond, Virginia. Ninety-one percent of the drinkers approved of the canned beer, driving Kruger to give the green light to further production. By the late 19th century, cans were instrumental in the mass distribution of foodstuffs. But it wasn't until 1909 that the American Can Company made its first attempt to can beer. This was unsuccessful, and the American Can Company would have to wait for the end of prohibition in the United States before it tried again. Finally, in 1933, after two years of research, the American Can developed a can that was pressurized and had a special coating to prevent the fizzy beer from chemically reacting with the tin. The concept of canned beer proved to be a hard sell, but Kruger's, Overcame its initial reservations and became the first brewer to sell canned beer in the United States. The response was overwhelming. Within three months, over 80% of distributors were handling Kruger's canned beer, and Kruger's was eating into the market share of the big three national brewers Anheuser-Busch, Pabst, and Schlitz. Competitors soon followed suit, and by the end of 1935, over 200 million cans had been produced and sold. The purchase of cans, unlike bottles, did not require the consumer to pay a deposit. Cans were also easier to stack, more durable, and took less time to chill. As a result, their popularity continued to grow throughout the 1930s and then exploded during World War II when U.S. brewers shipped millions of cans of beer to soldiers overseas. After the war, national brewing companies began to take advantage of the mass distribution that cans made possible and were able to consolidate their power over the once-dominant local breweries, which could not control costs and operations as efficiently as their national counterparts. Today, canned beer accounts for approximately half of the $20 billion U.S. beer industry. Not all of this comes from the big national brewers. Recently, there has been renewed interest in canning from microbrewers and high-end beer sellers who are realizing that cans guarantee purity and taste by preventing light damage and oxidation. January 25 On this date in African history, in the year 1905, the world's largest diamond is found. At the premier mine in Pretoria, South Africa, a 3,106-carat diamond is discovered during a routine inspection by the mine's superintendent. Weighing 1.33 pounds and christened the Coulanon, it was the largest diamond ever found. Frederick Wells was 18 feet below the earth's surface when he spotted a flash of starlight embedded in the wall just above him. His discovery was presented that same afternoon to Sir Thomas Coulanon, who owned the mine. Coulanon then sold the diamond to the Transvaal Provincial Government which presented the stone to Britain's King Edward VII as a birthday gift. Worried that the diamond might be stolen in transit from Africa to London, Edward arranged to send a phony diamond aboard a steamer ship loaded with detectives as a diversionary tactic. While the decoy slowly made its way from Africa on the ship, the Kulanon was sent to England in a plain box. Edward entrusted the cutting of the Kulanon to Joseph Asher, head of the Asher Diamond Company of Amsterdam. Asher, who had cut the famous Excelsior diamond, a 971-carat diamond found in 1893, studied the stone for six months before attempting the cut. On his first attempt, the steel blade broke, with no effect on the diamond. On the second attempt, the diamond shattered exactly as planned. Asher then supposedly fainted from nervous exhaustion. The was later cut into nine large stones and about 100 smaller ones, valued at millions of dollars all told. The largest stone is called the Star of Africa 1, or Kulinon 1, and at 530 carats, it is the largest, cut-fine-quality, colorless diamond in the world. The second largest stone, the Star of Africa 2, or Kulinon 2, is 317 carats. Both of these stones, as well as the Kulinon three, are on display in the Tower of London with Britain's other crown jewels. The Kulinon I is mounted in the British Sovereign's Royal Scepter, while the Kulinon II sits in the Imperial State Crown. January 26. On this date in Exploration History In the year 1788, a British settlement begins in Australia. On January 26, 1788, Captain Arthur Phillip guides a fleet of 11 British ships carrying convicts to the colony of New South Wales, effectively founding Australia. After overcoming a period of hardship, the fledgling colony began to celebrate the anniversary of this date with great fanfare and it's eventually became commemorated as Australia Day. In recent times, Australia Day has become increasingly controversial as it marks the start of when the continent's Indigenous people were gradually dispossessed of their land as white colonization spread across the continent. Australia, once known as New South Wales, was originally planned as a penal colony. In October 1786, the British government appointed Arthur Philip, captain of the HMS Sirius, and commissioned him to establish an agricultural work camp there for British convicts. With little idea of what he could expect from the mysterious and distant land, Philip had great difficulty assembling the fleet that was to make the journey. His requests for more experienced farmers to assist the penal colony were repeatedly denied, and he was both poorly funded and outfitted. Nonetheless, accompanied by a small contingent of Marines and other officers, Philip led his 1,000-strong party, of whom more than 700 were convicts, around Africa to the eastern side of Australia. In all, the voyage lasted eight months claiming the deaths of some thirty men. The first years of settlement were nearly disastrous. Cursed with poor soil, an unfamiliar climate, and workers who were ignorant of farming, Philip had great difficulty keeping the men alive. The colony was on the verge of outright starvation for several years, and the Marines sent to keep order were not up to the task. Philip Who proved to be a tough but fair minded leader persevered by appointing convicts to positions of responsibility and oversight. Floggings and hangings were commonplace, but so was egalitarianism. As Philip said before leaving England, in a new country there will be no slavery and hence no slaves. Though Philip returned to England in 1792, the colony became prosperous by the turn of the 19th century. Feeling a new sense of patriotism, the men began to rally around January 26 as their founding day. Historian Manning Clark noted that in 1808 the men observed the anniversary of the foundation of the colony with drinking and merriment. In 1818, January 26 became an official holiday, marking the 30th anniversary of British settlement in Australia. As Australia became a sovereign nation. It became the national holiday known as Australia Day. Many Aboriginal Australians call it Invasion Day. January 27. On this date in World War II history, in the year 1945, Auschwitz is liberated. Soviet troops enter Auschwitz, Poland, freeing the survivors of the network of concentration camps and finally revealing to the world the depth of the horrors perpetrated there. Auschwitz was really a group of camps, designated 1, 2, and 3. There were also 40 smaller satellite camps. It was at Auschwitz II at Birkenau, established in October 1941, that the SS created a complex, monstrously orchestrated killing ground, 300 prison barracks, 4 bathhouses in which prisoners were gassed, corpse cellars, and cremating ovens. Thousands of prisoners were also used for medical experiments, overseen and performed by the camp doctor, Joseph Mengele, the angel of death. The Red Army has been advancing deeper into Poland since mid January, having liberated Warsaw and Krakow. Soviet troops headed for Auschwitz. In anticipation of the Soviet arrival, SS officers began a murder spree in the camps, shooting sick prisoners and blowing up crematoria in the desperate attempt to destroy the evidence of their crimes. When the Red Army finally broke through, Soviet soldiers encountered 648 corpses and more than 7,000 starving camp survivors. There were also six storehouses filled with hundreds of thousands of women's dresses, men's suits, and shoes that the Germans did not have time to burn. January 28. On this date in music history in the year 1985, music stars gather to record We Are the World. The special instruction Quincy Jones sent out to the several dozen pop stars invited to participate in the recording of We Are the World was this. Check your egos at the door. Jones was the producer of a record that would eventually go on to sell more than 7 million copies and raise more than $60 million for African famine relief. But before We Are the World could achieve those feats, it had to be captured on tape. No simple feat, considering the number of major recording artists slated to participate. With only one chance to get the recording the way he and songwriters Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie wanted it, Jones convened the marathon recording session of We Are the World at around 10 p.m., on the evening of January 28, 1985, immediately following the conclusion of the American Music Award Ceremony, held just a few miles away. Singer-actor-activist Harry Belafonte was the initiator of the events that led to the recording of We Are the World. Inspired by the recent success of Do They Know It's Christmas?, the multi-million-selling charity record by the British-Irish collective Band-Aid, Belafonte asked Richie, Jackson, and Jones into helping him organize an American response under the name USA for Africa. Richie and Jackson wrote the song over the course of several days in January, and Belafonte's manager, Ken Cragen, who would go on to serve as president of the USA for Africa Foundation, the nonprofit organization that managed the profits from We Are the World, came up with a plan to hold the session on the night of the AMA's In order to guarantee that the greatest number of big names would be able to participate. Among the 45 stars who sang on We Are the World that night were huge in the 80s figures like Cindy Lauper and Huey Lewis, country stars like Kenny Rogers and Willie Nelson, pop icons like Smokey Robinson, Tina Turner, and Paul Simon, and musical giants like Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, and Bob Dylan. Also in the studio that night were half of the Jackson family. One Irishman, Bob Geldof, co-organizer of Band Aid, and one party-crashing Canadian comedian, Dan Aykroyd, egos fully in check. The group laid down the chorus and solos before sunrise on the 29th, and "We Are the World" was in the stores and on the airwaves just five weeks later. January 29. On this date in sports history, in the year 1936, the U.S. Baseball Hall of Fame elects its first members. The U.S. Baseball Hall of Fame elects its first members in Cooperstown, New York, Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Onus Wagner, Christy Mathewson, and Walter Johnson. The Hall of Fame actually had its beginnings in 1935, when plans were made to build a museum devoted to baseball and its 100-year history. A private organization based in Cooperstown called the Clark Foundation thought that establishing the Baseball Hall of Fame in their city would help to reinvigorate the area's depression-ravaged economy by attracting tourists. To help sell the idea, the Foundation advanced the idea that U.S. Civil War hero Abner Doubleday invented baseball in Cooperstown. The story proved to be phony, but baseball officials, eager to capitalize on the marketing and publicity potential of a museum to honor the game's greats, gave their support to the project anyway. In preparation for the dedication of the Hall of Fame in 1939, thought by many to be the centennial of baseball, the Baseball Writers' Association of America chose the five greatest superstars of the game as the first class to be inducted. Ty Cobb was the most productive hitter in history. Babe Ruth was both an ace pitcher and the greatest home run hitter to play the game. Onus Wagner was a versatile star shortstop and batting champion. Christy Mathewson had more wins than any pitcher in National League history. And Walter Johnson was considered one of the most powerful pitchers to have ever taken the mound. Today, with approximately 35,000 visitors per year, the Hall of Fame continues to be the hub of all things baseball. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for January 23rd through January 29. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.